chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And I actually didn't write down the page number for today, um, but page 802, thank you, Mike, in that black pew Bible. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament just before you get to Matthew in the New Testament. So today, uh, let, let me just go ahead and read the scripture for us, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Uh, believe it or not, this is my 11th Christmas Eve at First Baptist Church of Matawan, and when it's been a lot of Christmases, there's only so many go-to Christmas texts that you can get to. Um, D. James Kennedy, the pastor of, uh, the longtime pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in Florida, who's now with the Lord, but he used to preach the same sermon every Christmas. And I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, but uh, eventually, as a pastor, you just got to go back to some texts that you've preached before. So I don't know that I've done this one at Christmas, but I preached through Malachi back in 2016. And I went back and listened to how I preached it, and I didn't remember it at all. So I assume you don't either. All right? But if you're wondering, how did we get this, and where are we doing these, these texts? So we've got three sort of uh, Christmas theme, you might say, sermons today, uh, both this morning and this evening, and then we'll do another next week uh, on the 31st. And, uh, and so these are actually, the, the place where I'm getting these texts is from Handel's Messiah. Uh, I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with that, but just this, this great work uh, of music from the 18th century that is completely scripture. 100% of the words of Handel's Messiah are scripture texts, uh, but this year I decided just to go there and see what texts uh, did that pastor who was helping him out pick having to do with the birth of Christ, and those are the texts from the Old Testament prophets uh, that we're going to this year. So starting today with Malachi chapter 3 verses one through three. But uh, think of it, 11 Christmases. Some of you guys thought I'd never make it this long after the first couple of Christmas Eve services. Um, the, the first one, the first time that I preached a Christmas Eve service here, I took it as a great opportunity to tell people who don't usually come to church to repent of their sins and believe in Christ for their salvation. And I, I it didn't go over too well. Um, because there was kind of a different feeling f about what ought to happen uh, with visitors on Christmas Eve, that they should, should kind of receive the Christmas spirit and, and worry, you know, instead some people left worried that they might not go to heaven. That's the word that got back to me. Um, and I was such a young pastor, I was still learning. I said, okay, thank you for, for letting me know. And so when the next Christmas Eve rolled around, what I did is I, I took that Christmas Eve service as a great opportunity to tell people who don't usually come to church to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ for their salvation. And you know what? God has been so gracious. <laughs> He's been so gracious to me. He's been so gracious to this church. 
And so here we are still, uh, 10 years later, and guess what I'm going to do today on Christmas Eve? (laughs) I'm going to tell you to repent of your sins and believe in Christ for your salvation, because that's why Jesus came. And that's what this text is all about, is showing that Jesus came to purify this people for himself. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. When we come into the book of Malachi, this is a book where there have been these disputations with God. There's been this expression by the people of of Judah about their dissatisfaction with their circumstances. They're just kind of going back and forth between themselves and God and raising all kinds of complaints against God. And then God, through his prophet Malachi, is answering each of those complaints. But kind of where they are in, in time in the book of Malachi is that, that this is 430 years or so before Christ would come. But this is the last book in the Old Testament because they were about to get to a time where there would be what was described as a famine of the Word of God. There would be this period of 400 years with no prophets, no direct words from God. Now, God did a lot of things dealing with his people during that time, and some of those are recorded in what we now call the apocryphal books, but those are apocryphal books and not scripture because God was not giving his word at that time. But this is sort of the last word before God goes silent until John the Baptist and then Jesus coming into the world. And where they were, what was happening is that they had been in exile for their sins. God had carried off the people of Judah into Babylon to be in the hands of these oppressors who would make them slaves. And he used that as a, a time to, uh, to discipline for their, them for their sins, especially their sin of idolatry and worshiping other gods. But then after 70 years, he allowed them to return back to Jerusalem. And you see some of the story of that return in, uh, in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And, uh, and as they had come back, they had started to build things up. They rebuilt the walls. Um, they, they eventually built this second temple that was there. And what you see in Malachi is that there is an expectation on the part of the people. Okay, now that we're back in Jerusalem... Now that we have rebuilt a temple, now that we're not explicitly worshiping other gods anymore, you know, we're not setting up those statues in the temple like was happening before we got carried off to Babylon. Well, now that that's happening, God ought to make things go better for us than they're going. That was sort of the feeling. God, we've done all this for you. You owe this to us now. And they were looking at these prophecies that, that had been given about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this king who would be the, uh, in the line of David, the son of David, who would restore the kingdom. And they're looking at this and they're saying, well, why hasn't this happened? Why are we still in this position that's not what we want? They're, they're looking at prophecies like Joel 3, 1 to 2, which says, behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. They're saying, well, why hasn't this happened? Why haven't all our enemy nations been judged yet? We're doing the right things. Or Zechariah 1.17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. 
And they're saying, well, why aren't we overflowing with prosperity? Or Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. And they're saying, well, why don't we have that son of David king? Why isn't this working for us? Or Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And they're looking at their temple and saying, why hasn't this happened yet? Why has the glory of the Lord not come in? Why do we not have the wealth of the nations shaken into it? They see all these things happening, and they start doing three things in the book of Malachi. One is that they start envying the wicked. They look around at these wicked nations and how well things seem to be going for them as they're worshiping their other gods, and they start to say, maybe that's the way to go. Why aren't we like that? The second thing they do is they start grumbling against God. God, you should have made our circumstances different. Did you know that grumbling against your circumstances is grumbling against God? I'm not saying that you have to not work for better circumstances, but the Bible speaks very plainly about that. And that's what they were doing. They were grumbling against God because of their circumstances. And they were accusing God of evil. They were calling God a lover of evil and a God of injustice. In fact, that's the verses right before we get to this chapter. At the end of chapter 2 in Malachi, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Ugh, they're accusing God of evil. Now what God is going to do in this passage that we're in at the beginning of chapter 3 is he's going to tell them that he will fulfill his promise and that he's going to do it through sending the Savior who is the Lord, sending this Messiah. And he's going to do it with a messenger to prepare the way. So let's look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. You, You know what happens when the president goes somewhere? They get the place where he's going ready for him. Now, sometimes the, the president will know weeks in advance, or maybe he won't have it on his mind, but you know, the people around him will know weeks in advance where it is that he's going to go. And weeks out, the Secret Service will come and visit those places. Maybe he's going to go to somebody's house for some reason, on a campaign stop or something like that. Well, that's going to be planned, and the Secret Service is going to go there, and they're going to come in, they're going to interview the people who live there, they're going to look around at what's going on in the house, they're going to do things that the people who live there never thought of, like looking out the windows and seeing, is there a spot a mile away where a sniper could sit and snipe into this window? They're going to be doing all kinds of preparation for the president to come because they need to protect him. What's happening here is that there needs to be preparation as Jesus is coming, but it's the opposite reason. It's not to protect Jesus. It's to protect the people that Jesus is coming to. 
What it says here is that there needs to be preparation, and he's going to say it's because the one who is coming is like a refiner's fire. And if that's what's coming, then Jesus coming into this world is dangerous to sinners. That's why there had to be a messenger sent before the coming of Jesus. And that's why when you go to places like the Gospel of Luke and read about the birth of Jesus that you see mixed in with the stories of birth, the birth of Jesus are the stories of the birth of another guy whose name was John. We, we usually call him John the Baptist. R.C. Sproul used to call him John the Presbyterian, but that's wrong. He's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is mentioned there because he is the messenger that God sent. He was that first prophet breaking into the darkness after that 430 years of no word from God. He was sent by God to preach the word, to prepare the way. And what was the message that God used and put into the mouth of John the Baptist, this messenger who prepared the way before Christ well, it was the message of repentance. The message of repentance from sin. That's, that's interest, interesting, isn't it? Because what they were expecting, you mentioned a little bit about the circumstance of these people sitting around Jerusalem wondering, when's our kingdom going to get great? And, and, and God is saying, I'm going to send the king that I have promised. If we were making all of this up, if it were just man's plan, then we would think that the messenger who comes to prepare the way for this promised king, who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, we, we would think that probably his task would be something like getting ready for the people to fight, or getting ready for the people to uh, lay out the proper political circumstances for this new ruler to rise to power. But you know what? Jesus is the kind of savior who came to save his people not from Roman oppression, but came to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel announced to Joseph when he said that Jesus was going to be born. You will call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. It says the reason is because he will save his people, not from all of the worldly things that they wanted to be saved from, but from their own sins. And so John the Baptist came as a messenger before the way to cry out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, it says this about him in Mark chapter 1. He says that this was written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He says that's why he came. He was saying, repent of your sins. King Jesus is coming. Go through these waters to represent that you need God to wash you clean. Because there's somebody who's coming who will wash you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. He says in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see what's happening? He's preparing the way because the king who is coming is dangerous. 
but also saying you can have his peace. You can be not burned up by his unquenchable fire, but refined. Repent of your sins. The judge is coming, and he's also the Savior. The next thing it says in Malachi is not just that the messenger was going to come, which is John the Baptist, but that the Lord himself is coming. The coming of the Lord. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see a few things about Jesus expressed here. This is about Jesus. I just want to be clear about that. This is about Jesus. This was written 430 years before Jesus came, but it's about Jesus. It's kind of obvious if you're willing to see. What it says, though, is that this is the Lord whom you seek. That word Lord there is the word for master. Sometimes when we see the word Lord in the Old Testament, you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that, that's translating the word Yahweh, the, the formal name of God, the great I am. Sometimes when you see the Lord, uh, the word Lord, it's, it's with lowercase, and that's what you have here, which is the word Adonai, uh, which just means master. Sometimes it's referring to God. Sometimes it's referring to a master who is a mere man. Sometimes it's ambiguous. And I think there's a little bit of intentional ambiguity on the part of the Holy Spirit in breathing out this prophecy the way that he did here. But that's so that us who see this can look back and say, this Jesus... This king who is coming is master, and he is God. He is master, and he is going to come, it says, into his temple. Whose temple is it? It's God's temple. If it's his temple and he's coming into it, who is this guy? Well, he's God. He's God who has come in the flesh. That's what we celebrate this time of year, is that God is with us. He's come to us in the flesh. The fact that he is Lord is something that we all need to know, too. This baby who's born in the manger is your king and your judge and your creator. And you are accountable to him for all eternity. If you've come to faith in Jesus, then you know that he is a righteous and blessed and gracious and merciful and loving and kind and gentle Savior. You know that. And you also need to know that he is still Lord. We don't just take Jesus as only the one who saves us from our sins or only the one who tells us these good teachings, but also the one who is our master to be obeyed. Another way to put that is that he is our prophet, priest, and king. And you can't come to Jesus and just take him only as your priest who covers your sins and that ignore the words that he says to you as your prophet or ignore the mastery that he has over you as your king. He is the whole Jesus. He is the Lord who has come into his temple. And as we come to know him, we need to submit to the lordship that is his and always has been. It says, the Lord will come suddenly into his temple. This is a prediction of Jesus' coming into the world. This happened in Jesus' first coming. It's going to happen again in Jesus' second coming. When he came suddenly into his temple, John 1.14 says this, And the Word, and that's Jesus, the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Or really, another way you could translate that is he came, became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Or he templed among us. That idea of the temple, what did that represent? It represented God dwelling among man. What is Jesus other than that? Jesus is God in the flesh. He came and dwelt among us. The fact of Jesus coming into his temple, the Lord whom you see coming suddenly into his temple, that happened beginning with the virgin conception of Christ in the womb of Mary. When Christ took on flesh and came to be with us. He liked to hang around the temple too in his earthly life, in his earthly ministry. On the eighth day of his life, his parents brought him to the temple and there was a man there whose name was Simeon. And it says that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents, that's Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that means to receive circumcision, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. See, Jesus, even as a baby, literally came into his temple. And Simeon, who had been promised by God that he would get to see the Christ, saw him and rejoiced. In Jesus' childhood, when he was 12 years old, his parents lost him in Jerusalem. And they looked for him for three days, and you know where they found him? They found him in the temple. It says in Luke 2, 46, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard his answers were amazed at his understanding. And you know what Jesus said to his parents? I love this. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The Lord had come suddenly into his temple. Or Luke 19, this was... Uh, during the time of his, his earthly ministry, not long before he would go to the cross, it says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. There he was. Was he what people expected him to be when he came suddenly into his temple? No. They expected him to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse taking out the Romans, building a palace for himself. But what did he do? He came in humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, and he came straight to the temple. And he cleared it out, and he preached the gospel. You know what he did then? He died on the cross for our sins. Rather than, than going to a throne, at least in his first coming, he went to his execution. And he was executed in our place for our sins. And when he had died, he rose from the dead on the third day. And he showed himself to be Lord. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And you know what it says about that in Hebrews 9.24? Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has entered back into the temple that the earthly temple represented all along, which is the presence of God in heaven. And he's there praying for his people right now. Another thing that he did is he sent his Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is at certain places in the Bible called the Spirit of Christ. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is here. Did you know that? And each church is built on Christ. And when I say church, I mean an actual church. A church that's preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We are built together. It says, Ephesians 2.20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why did I read you all of those things? Because I'm just showing you that Christ has come suddenly into his temple And if we think to ourselves, well, this has to just be the second coming or this has to just be some kind of a way that this prophecy was never fulfilled or something like that, we need to open our eyes to the reality that's right in front of us. Christ has built us now as a holy temple and he is with us, dwelling with us by the Holy Spirit, Christ himself being the cornerstone and he is Lord of lords and King of kings and ruling from the holy temple in heaven And he's also going to come a second time. When it says he will come suddenly into his temple, this is doing one of the things that often happens with Old Testament prophecies, which is not just predicting one singular event, but also a pattern that's going to build up to the great fulfillment in the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ. He came once and he's coming again. Did you know that? For all eternity, I think we'll I think we'll probably still celebrate Christmas and we'll also celebrate something maybe we'll maybe we'll call it second Christmas Because we we celebrate the first coming of Christ and he's coming a second time and when he comes suddenly into his temple It's going to be surprising. It's going to be sudden he said in Matthew 24 37 as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be this coming of the Son of Man. Or it says in 1 Thessalonians, it will be like a thief in the night. But as those who know Christ, who trust in Christ, it also says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Amazing, isn't it? We can be watching, we can be praying, we can be expecting Christ, our King, who has already come into his temple, to come a second time. But when he comes, remember what we said? We have to be protected from him. He's the judge. It says in verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of, of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Interesting that it says, when he comes, who can endure it? Just remember again, in Malachi, what's going on is these people are, they want, they, they want the promises to come true. They want the prophecies about the Messiah to come because they think, well, if, the, if, this, if this great Christ, this great anointed one, this great son of David comes, and is our king, he's gonna build us up and we're gonna have all of this wealth and prosperity and we're gonna rule the nations and, and things are gonna be so much better for us and, and 
this, this second temple that we have that just doesn't quite have the same glimmer as the first temple. Maybe it's going to get glorious when we have that. Maybe all of this is just going to come together when, when he comes. Well, what Malachi is saying is he is coming, and when he comes, he will be a refiner's fire. He's saying it's not quite what you're expecting. It's almost like saying, you know what, when you finally, when you finally get to the point where your finances and your family situation and your work situation, when they all come together just right for you to finally take that dream vacation that you've been wanting for so long, when it finally comes together, how are you possibly going to survive it? That's kind of like the question that Malachi is putting forward, or that God is putting forward through the prophet Malachi. When he comes, who may endure the day of his coming? You say you want to see him face to face. You say you want him here. Who can endure it? When people came to understand who Jesus was, they tended to be terrified. His, his glory was veiled by his humanity. But when Peter understood it as he was standing on that fishing boat, when God, when Jesus had done this miracle of, of making this massive catch of fish come in, that's when Peter understood this man that I'm with is something more than a mere man. You know what he did? He fell down and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Or, or when Peter and James and John got to go up on that mountain with Jesus, and they saw what we now call the transfiguration, which was a time when God peeled back a little bit of the, veiled, the, the veil that Christ's humanity had brought over his glory and allowed them to see Christ shining in the beauty of this sun-bright glory. They had no idea what to do. They, it was almost a question of what, how can we possibly even be here? Or even when there was something of a hint of that, back when Moses had gotten to go up on Mount Sinai and to receive this, this word from God and the law from God, you remember he came down, he hadn't even seen God face to face. He, 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 all Moses could do is even just ask for a glimpse of the back of the glory of God. But when Moses came down, his face was shining so brightly that the people couldn't even bear to look at the face of Moses. And, and so it makes sense if we're talking about the fact that this Savior that they had been hoping for is God himself come in the flesh. It makes total sense who can endure the day of his coming. The reality is that we are sinners and when I say we are sinners, I mean we are sinners. A lot of people want to qualify that in all kinds of ways, but we are sinners. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer primarily defined as a sinner, but I guarantee you're still a sinner. We are simultaneously, as Martin Luther put it, sinners and justified. But if you haven't come to faith in Christ then you are just plain rebellious against God. You may not think of yourself that way. 
You may think of yourself as a pretty good person. You may even claim to be a follower of the Ten Commandments, which probably means you've never read the first one. We were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. We were enemies of God. To just merely come into the presence of God would destroy us if not for the work of Christ applied to us. Jesus is the one who has come and who can endure, who can stand. What is it that he came to do? It says he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. You know what a refiner's fire is? It's when you, well, I mean, I don't think anybody here is like a gold or silver miner. Probably not going to pick apart the way I describe this too much, but, you know, you dig a piece of silver out of the ground, it's not going to look quite like you want it to look for a piece of jewelry yet. And, and there's going to be all kinds of dirt mixed in and rock and and so if you want to get pure silver, you have to put it through the fire. You have to be able to separate out the silver from what's called the dross. And in that refining process, obviously, if you, if you just said, okay, well, we don't want to harm this piece of silver we just took out of the ground. If, if, your, if your real goal was, I don't want to harm it, then you wouldn't put it in the fire like that. But your goal is instead to refine it. He says, I, a Christ is a refiner's fire. Or the other picture that he gives is a fuller's soap. A fuller being somebody who makes soap. Or who washes clothes. Uh, this soap, this would have been, you know, the old-timey kind of lye soap. And, and when he says the, the fuller's soap, just keep in mind that having to get your clothes clean back then was, was a pretty big deal because you couldn't just have a whole closet full of clothes unless you were royalty back then. Uh, you know, the whole process of, of making thread and turning it into clothing was just incredibly labor-intensive. And, and so, you know, anybody who had, you know, maybe two changes of clothes, like that was a pretty, a, a, you were pretty set if you had two changes of clothes. Uh, but if you got a stain on your clothes in that situation, you don't just say to yourself, well, I'll throw this one out and go to Kohl's and get another one. You couldn't do that. And so this was a really big deal. We have to put this garment through some serious stuff to get this stain out. And sometimes those stains would be not just something like, uh, you know, an inconvenience and embarrassment because I got spaghetti sauce on it, but something more like, you know, what is that bodily fluid? And is it carrying disease? And something has to be dealt with here. And the Fuller's soap has to clean this garment because you can't just leave the stain there. In 2015, there was an outbreak of a virus that a lot of us have forgotten about because of the other outbreak of the other virus in 2020. But there was an outbreak then of the Ebola virus in West Africa. Some of you might remember this. And even though it was mostly contained to West Africa, it gave the whole world a little bit of a scare. And uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about COVID, but Ebola is pretty, it's pretty clear. Like, you don't want to get Ebola. You are pretty, pretty likely to die if that virus comes into contact with you. But people had to go and help. And you might remember some of the pictures from the news from back then if you were, uh, if you were paying attention or 
but these these workers who were just covered from head to toe in these giant hazmat suits. But these were doctors and nurses who were going in to these huts and villages in, in West Africa and, and trying to treat and help people and, and save lives as best they could and put an end to this epidemic because you could not let just a hint of that virus get on your skin or on your garments. And there was a couple of times when people were not as careful about that as they should have been. There was a television reporter who had been around the virus, who was a reporter, I think, for NBC News, and she lived in Princeton, New Jersey. And she just decided, yeah, I'm supposed to be under quarantine, but I'm going to go out and get myself some takeout. Gave that whole uh, central part of, of the state a big scare. She ended up losing her job over that. There was an American doctor who... who um, wound up having Ebola and he didn't know it and he had gone all over New York City on the subway like going bowling in Brooklyn and different stuff and gave the whole city a scare there and I remember in that time I actually went to to visit one of our church members in the hospital in New Brunswick and I saw a sign at the front of the hospital that said that this hospital is one of the designated places for Ebola patients and I thought do I really need to go in I don't know but when you have something like that, it kind of shows you when this is there, when this is starting to spread, it has to get dealt with or it's deadly. When, when we're talking about a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, this is not just like we, we want our silver ring to be a little bit prettier. This is not just we want our garment to be a little bit more presentable. What we're talking about here is the stain of sin. And if you think that sin is less deadly than Ebola, then I hope you will take seriously what God says about it. Sin leads to death. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we can't clean ourselves up from it. We can, we can change our behavior sometimes. We can do self-improvement kinds of things and maybe, maybe get into better habits and maybe even leave behind addictions. There's, there's all kinds of things that you can do to, to kind of better your life, but can you clean yourself from your sin? The answer is no. Even if somehow you were able to make yourself from this day forward never sin again, you would still have the stain of sin on you. You would still have the mark of guilt as one who has rebelled against God. What is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Anytime that you haven't done exactly what God says to do in your actions or in your words or in the thinking and feeling of your heart, you are in rebellion against God. And that sin is deadly. You can't say to God, okay, well, I think that probably my good works outweigh my bad works, and so I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go to heaven. Why can't you do that? Well, it's because you can't, you can't walk into a hospital and say, okay, I only got Ebola virus on the right side of my pant leg, but the rest of my clothes are perfectly clean, 
And so I think I'm acceptable to go in. You can't do that. You can't come before the judge when, when you're on trial for Grand Theft Auto and say, okay, yes, I stole that car, but I've done a lot more good things than, than that one time I stole that car, so you should say I'm not guilty. You're guilty. Sin stains and sin is deadly. And it has to be dealt with and it has to be dealt with completely and you can't do it. You are hopeless in your sin. But Christ has come. Christ has come as the one who is the refiner's fire. As the one who is the fuller's soap. And he will purify the sons of Levi. And how did he do it? How did he do it? Well, he went and he took the death penalty in our place. He went to the cross for us. This is why he came. This is why he was born, so that he could live the sinless life that we couldn't live, and so that he could die the perfect death on the cross to pay for our sins in our place and rise from the dead victorious and offer us to be cleansed from the inside out of our sin, forgiven and counted righteous. It says that he is the one who will purify the sons of Levi. And when he says sons of Levi, we can look at that and we can say, this is us today who believe in Jesus Christ. Sons of Levi was the priestly class. And as we trust in Christ, the New Testament says that us who believe have become a kingdom of priests to our God and we shall reign forever. We are a priestly kingdom We are those that Jesus has come to save, Jesus has come to clean, and Jesus has come in love to purify us. It says this in Ephesians 5.25, that the reasons that husbands should love their wives is because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus came because none of all of the human efforts at kingdom building, at good works, at religion could ever purify anybody from their sins. Jesus had to come and do it all himself. If you are not in Christ, come to Christ. Be cleansed, be forgiven. If you are a believer in Christ, then we should look at this and we should love holiness. We should love that Jesus came not just to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank God that he does that. We, he does this through trials. As it says in 1 Peter 1.6, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you go through trials and difficulties, believer, take that as the refining fire of Christ for your good, for his glory, for your holiness. He does it also through our disciplined pursuit of holiness, where he says, train yourself for godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. If we can say, Jesus came into the world to be a fuller soap and a refiner's fire and to purify the sons of Levi, let's pursue purity. 
Let's pursue holiness because that's why he came. And it says in verse 3b, the end of this passage, they will bring offerings in righteousness. Note the order here. It doesn't say you come and bring offerings to God, you come and worship, you come and do religious things, and then in response that God would accept you as righteous. That is what the world thinks that God ought to do. You see that reflected in every man-made religion in the world. This idea, okay, I realize that I've got some bad things going on, I've gotta make it up to God, and so I'm gonna come to God, I'm gonna bring him an offering, I'm gonna do a religious thing for him, I'm gonna do a good work, I'm gonna get on board with this system, and in response, then God should accept me. He should count me as righteous. That's man-made, and it can't save, and it's wrong. What it says here, though, is that once Christ has first come and done the work, once Christ has come to give the offering that would be the refining fire and the fuller soap for us, when that is applied to us, then we can come and bring offerings in righteousness. You see, it's the opposite order. You don't come to God and say, okay, I'm gonna get good enough until you accept me. We come to God as sinners. Coming to God and saying, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. You come to God as you are and say, God, I am ready for you to refine me with your fire. I am ready for you to clean me with your soap. I accept the cleansing blood of Jesus shed for me on the cross. And from the moment that we repent and believe in him, we are counted as righteous. And then we get to bring offerings in righteousness. Amazing, isn't it? God does the work himself and makes it possible so that we can then come and worship in righteousness. The way that it's put in, in second, or 1 Peter 2.5 is that he has made us a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ that we can do that. What are the offerings? Those of you whose faith is in Christ and you wanna bring righteous offerings to God in righteousness, what do you bring? Well, Psalm 51, 17 says, bring a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the sacrifices of God according to Psalm 51. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Or Romans 12, 1 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what God wants. He wants our hearts. He wants our praise. He wants ourselves. Jesus has come to be the king, not just of some kind of an abstract thing out there or some nation far away. Jesus has come to be the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap, the one coming into the temple in order to save us from our sins. Repent, believe in him, thank him that he's come into the world and offer these sacrifices in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we get to be here worshiping you today. Thank you that you've brought um, this church together. Thank you for bringing the visitors here today. 
Lord, just by, by the nature of the kind of day that it is, there's a lot of people who I'm looking at as I'm preaching who, whose names I don't know yet. Um, and I don't know how you've brought them in, whether they have been dragged here by family or uh, if, if they're here because they genuinely want to know the Lord. God, I pray that whatever barriers that they have, whatever desire they have to get out of here uh, and, and to go do Christmas things, God, I pray that you would tear down those walls in their hearts, and I pray that you would bring them face to face with Christ the Savior, who has come into this world, suddenly into his temple, to be a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And God, I pray that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith in Jesus Christ. Grant them not to leave here and head down the road to hell, but Lord, grant them the eternal life that Jesus came to bring that no mere man could ever achieve. Father, I pray uh, that, that if that is the case, that you would grant that salvation right now. Lord, we know that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we get to know that and rejoice in that. God, I pray for um, us who are in Christ. We just thank you for the gift of Jesus who has come. Lord, we may be going through trials right now, and we pray that you would use those for our refinement, for our holiness. Lord, even when we're not going through trials, grant us the discipline to pursue godliness because Christ has come to refine us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us as those who trust in you to, to bring you offerings and righteousness as we have been counted as possessing the righteousness of Christ by faith. Father, I also pray that you would take the rest of this day and tomorrow in particular. And I pray that through the times that we have with family or perhaps even without family, that you would allow our hearts to be set not just on worldly things that will pass away, but on Christ who has come into the world and is coming again. And I pray that he would be worshiped and glorified in our hearts and in our homes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.